every single day, and we've talked about this every single week in this series, every single day, whether you realize it or not, you are in the process of writing a story. Uh, you're in the process of writing the story of your life, just like I'm in the process of writing the story of my life, and we're writing it line by line. We're writing it chapter by chapter. Every decision that we make is going into that story. Every uh, priority that we choose, every relationship that we enter into or do not enter into is going into that story. Uh, every word that we choose to say or choose not to say is, is a part of the story that we're writing day by day, decision by decision. Um, and I don't care if you're talking about Walt Disney or if you're talking about Stephen King. Every story that we're in the process of writing, it's got a few things in common, right? I mean, they all have a hero. Every story has a hero, and every story has a villain. Every story has an, a protagonist. Every story has an antagonist. And most often, those two characters in the story, uh, they're in some type of conflict with one another. That's pretty typical. Um, one of my favorite movies, of probably, if we're being honest, probably my favorite movie of all time is... The Shawshank Redemption. I love that. I'm a guy. I think all guys kind of like the Shawshank Redemption. It's a Stephen King book. Turn it into a movie. I love the movie, The Shawshank Redemption. I don't care when that movie comes on AMC because it seems to come on AMC like, you know, five times a week. If it comes on AMC, I'm flipping through the channels. I don't care what I'm doing. I don't care what part of the movie I catch. I'm going to stop at least for a few minutes, and I'm going to watch that movie every single time. And if, and if you know the story, you know that the, the hero, the protagonist of that movie, Shawshank Redemption, is an individual by the name of Andy Dufresne, right? Andy Dufresne. He is a man who has been convicted of his wife's murder, and as a result, he is going to spend life at Shawshank. He's the protagonist, Andy Dufresne. But we also know, if you've watched the movie before, you know who the bad guy is, the villain, the antagonist. You know it's the, it's the warden, right? The warden. He's the bad guy. The warden is he's crooked, he's sinister, he's dishonest, and pretty much from the beginning of the movie, he is in conflict in one way or another with Andy. There's a, there's a conflict that's going on. And, and, and if you've seen the movie, then you know, that, you know the feeling that I am trying to get you to feel you know that moment when Andy escapes the prison you know and, and he gets out and he's free and he goes to Mexico and then when the warden gets what's coming to him you know that part feels good right feels good you know the reason it feels good is because the bad guy got what was coming to him the the, the hero of the story won the bad guy lost it just it turned out the way we want it to turn out now we're not, we're not that much different. You're probably not that much different from me. We all have heroes in our life, right? Everyone has a hero. When you were a kid, when you were growing up, you had a hero, someone that was kind of, you know, you put up on a pedestal just a little bit. Um, think about that. Who, who was your hero? Who was it? Who, who was the person, he or she, that you kind of put up on a pedestal when you were, you were growing up? Um, who did you want to be like? Who was it that you wanted to emulate when you were a child? Um, was it a sports hero? Was it a musician? Was it an actor? You know, who was the greatest of all time? Who was the goat of your generation? Now, if, if you're about my age or maybe a little bit older, you were at all into sports. You know who the goat was in our generation. The goat of our generation was Michael Jordan, right? Michael Jordan. We were Chicago Bulls fans because of his airness. He was the goat. Now, I didn't know the guy. I didn't know Michael Jordan. Never met him probably never will meet him. I, I didn't know Michael Jordan, but it didn't matter. When I was a kid, I loved Michael Jordan. He was the GOAT. He was the hero, right? But as we get older, 
something begins to change. As we mature, something begins to change with the people that we decide to emulate or to place kind of up on that pedestal. Um, the people that we look toward as examples, the people that we believe are worth emulating, it changes because here's what's happening. As we mature, as we get older, as we experience more, we begin to look less about the things that our heroes possess, right? We begin to look less at the things that our heroes possess. We care a whole lot less about what they can do, and instead, we begin to focus more about the things that they represent, right? You know that. As you have gotten older, since you were a young, you know, a child or a teenager, you know that the people that you tried to emulate, it began to change. It was less about what they can do, and it was more about what they represented, the values that they reflected, the story that their life, their decisions, tells. Again, you know this. I think everyone's pretty much on the same page, that as we mature, people's integrity begins to impact us much more than their talent. Um, it, it's the reason why, you don't even realize you do this, but you, you probably do, it's the reason why you'll pause when you see integrity in action, right? It's the reason that you give it a double take when you see someone doing the right thing just because it's the right thing to do, even when it costs you. It's the reason we, we pause when we see integrity in action. It's the reason why the reason why at school, if a student finds a $5 bill on the playground, right, and brings it in and turns it into the teacher, or they turn it into the office, the principal, the assistant principal, someone, it's the reason why, instead of keeping it, right, instead of putting it in their pocket, no one knows the difference. No one would ever know. It's the reason why when that student turns that $5 in, instead of putting it in their pocket, it's the reason the teacher celebrates it. It's the reason it's a big deal. It's the reason it's on Facebook. There's their picture holding the $5 bill that they turned in. The reason we celebrate that is because we know that's not natural. That's not, that's not typical for us. That's not the natural thing to do. We know that. And that's the reason that you give integrity a double take when you see it. You, 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 you pause. You're like, wow, that, that's different. That's new. No, I wasn't expecting that. See, we expect integrity from others. We, we expect people to treat us right, you know, spouse, kids, police, government, whatever. But we give ourselves a pass. I'll give myself a little bit of a pass. I'm not as good at towing the line for myself as I expect you to be when it comes to me. Uh, we kind of give ourselves a little bit of an excuse. And, um, and although the choice to exhibit integrity. We know it's a choice that you make as an individual. You get the choice to make it as I get the choice to make it. You have to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. We also know, and you understand this, that it's not a decision that we make in isolation, right? It doesn't just affect us. It affects everyone who is a part of our story. They're affected by our integrity or our lack of integrity. Good, bad. We know that. Which is why in this series we've kind of had as maybe an umbrella bottom line for this entire series, um, something that King Solomon wrote in the 11th proverb. And it's, I think it's going to be on the screen. And this is where King Solomon wrote this. He says that the integrity of the upright guides them. Integrity guides them. The integrity of the upright guides them, while the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. It's kind of been our umbrella concept. And last week we said that we've got to filter our decisions. We've got to filter our choices through this proverb. Proverbs 11. And not only that, but the posture that it creates, because the integrity of the upright 
guides them while the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. We've got to ask ourselves, what is it that's competing for my attention right now? What is it that has the microphone in my life that is determining the direction that my life is taking right now? Is integrity my guide or is it my appetite? Is it integrity, doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do, even if it's going to cost me? Or is it my appetite? Is it the thing that I want, the thing that I feel, the thing that I think I need right now, in this moment? Am I making these decisions with the posture that kind of Solomon describes, you know, straight up, looking ahead, understanding that today's decisions are going to affect tomorrow's outcomes? Or, or am I crooked? Am I bent over? Am I looking straight down, only thinking about now, this moment, and letting my appetite have the microphone. Last week, we talked about how it happened to Esau, right? We talked about how Esau tr uh, traded his future to satisfy an appetite that he had in the moment. But I, I really don't think we need to be all that hard on Esau. Truthfully, some of you, if you were here last week, you might have left last week with, you know, kind of on the surface thinking, man, that was dumb. That was stupid. I, I've never heard that before. I can't imagine trading away what he would have gotten because he was the oldest son only for a bowl of soup. That was dumb, man. But I really don't think we should be all that too tough on him. I, don't, I know I shouldn't because, hey, I have made some really bad trades in my life. I have. I've done some really stupid stuff in my life when looking back on it, it's like, man, that was really, really dumb. It was a bad decision. We have all overinflated the importance of the moment because there was an appetite that was screaming into the microphone telling us what we needed now, right? We've all overinflated the moment and the importance of the moment. And the text tells us that, hey, Esau was tired. In fact, he was exhausted. He was hungry. He was ripe for the picking, so to speak, in the moment. He made a really bad deal. See, in the moment, in the moment, Esau had a really hard time making a good decision in the moment. Well, we've all done that. I've done it. I've been there. We've all found ourselves in a position of weakness. Maybe, maybe you felt powerless to take another step. You were exhausted. And in the moment, you were having to make a really, really big decision that was going to directly influence your story or directly influence the story of someone connected to you in the moment. Sometimes the exhaustion that you felt wasn't even your fault. Someone put you in the position that you found yourself in. Someone else made a decision that placed you in a tough spot, and you just were dealing with so, so much. You were under a deadline, and someone dropped something on your desk at 4 o'clock and said, I need it by 5, right? That wasn't on you, but here you are. You're in the moment. You're facing the consequences of whatever that looks like. Maybe you're just simply exhausted. I mean, because, hey, you're, you're being pulled in so many different directions. You've got to eat right. You've got to exercise. You got to, you know, you got to get the kids to school. You got to make sure dance. You, you get to dance. You got to get over to soccer practice. You've got to, you got to do all of these things and still stay normal and still stay, stay, stay sane. I mean, hard to do. You're being pulled in so many different directions, and so we're kind of ripe for the picking. We're tired. We're exhausted. We're, we're under pressure. We're under stress. We're mentally tired. Because here's the deal: there's so much pressure in the moment so much. It's amazing how in the moment, there are so many extenuating circumstances that come up, right? I mean, there are so many extenuating circumstances that come up to justify some decisions that we make, to, 
to justify some choices. I mean, there's so much pressure to do well in school. Right, students? Your student? Yeah, it's a lot of pressure. You got a lot of pressure on you. Because, I mean, hey, you don't make good grades, you're not going to graduate. If you don't graduate, you're not going to be able to get a job. If you don't get a job, you're not going to have any money. If you don't have any money, you're not going to have any clothes. You're going to have any food. You're going to have lights on. You're not going to have any hot water. You're not going to be able to have a, a place to live. You won't have a roof. You won't have a car. It's a lot of pressure. You guys got a lot of pressure on you. So it's no wonder why we've all been there. It's no wonder why when you forget to study for a test or when you, you know, just don't. And the expectation to do, do well and make good grades is so high, it's no wonder why in the moment when we have to make this decision, in the moment, it caused you to write a few answers on your hand, bottom of your shoe, on your desk, whatever, whatever it looked like. I know I did. I did. Tell you guys something. When I was in school, I had one class in particular. We had a whiteboard in the class. And I figured out pretty early on, if you're a student, don't take this too seriously. I don't think y'all have whiteboards anymore. I think you do the smart boards. I figured out real quick that if I took a certain cleaning solution, if I could work it out where I could put a certain cleaning solution on the whiteboard, and, I, and I'd clean it, and I'd take a dark enough marker and write things that I wanted to know, and I took a dirty eraser and erased it, if I sat at a certain angle to that whiteboard, guess what I could see? The answers. I cheated. I was Sorry, Mom. I was good at it. <laughs> I figured it out. See, in the moment, in the moment, in the moment when the pressure of the moment, the stress of the moment, the circumstances of the moment come bubbling to the surface, which they always do, right? They do every single time. It's hard to be guided by integrity. In the moment, it's hard. It's tough the reason why we have such a quick fuse with our kids and we move quickly toward anger. It's the reason why, because in the moment, man, as opposed to talking to them, sitting down, trying to understand what happened and learn from it, it's the reason why we move to anger, because in the moment, man, you're tired, you're exhausted, you're stressed, you're, you're dealing with so many things. In the moment, when anger surges, we take it out on someone else. Someone else has to take the brunt of our frustration in the moment. Think about our gut reaction to taxes. You know, tax time comes around. Figure out a way to get around that. Misuse of company resources. You ever stolen five gallons of gas from, you know, from work? Nobody's going to miss it. The speed limit. In the moment, eh, our concept of the speed limit is like, you know, it's not really a limiting number. It's more like, how fast can I go without having somebody pull me over? That's the speed limit. It means nothing else. I love 75 miles an hour on the interstate because I can run 83. Nobody bothers me. Go 84, though, that's the speed limit. See, if we don't decide ahead of time, to show a little bit of integrity. If we don't decide ahead of time to show integrity in the small things, things like the speed limit or taxes or you know the five gallons of gas that no one's gonna know about. We're gonna have a really hard time showing integrity when the big things come up. It's gonna be harder, it's gonna be difficult, especially in the moment, in the moment. Because the moment always seems to have extenuating circumstances to justify almost anything the moment. And the consequences in the moment might not just be a minor traffic ticket. It might be a divorce. 
It might be losing a job. It might be losing a friend. It might be even losing your freedom. Now, like us, Daniel from the Old Testament, he was, he was busy. He was writing a story day by day, decision by decision, priority, priority, by priority, so on and so forth. Daniel was making some decisions. Um, to me, Daniel is one of the more interesting parts of Scripture. In fact, it's my favorite. I, of all the 66 books in the, in the Bible, you know, Genesis to Revelation, Daniel's my favorite. I love Daniel because Daniel's real history. I mean, Dan, not that it's not all real history, but Daniel's different because Daniel, Daniel is a lot of prophecy that's actually been fulfilled. It's actually history now because it's already happened. In fact, Daniel is such a um, is such evidentiary support to the validity of the Bible that skeptics of the Bible, skeptics of things that are in Daniel, actually have to argue that Daniel was written after the fact. In other words, they say Daniel was written after these things happened because there's no way it could have been written before because it's too accurate. I like Daniel. Daniel's my favorite book. Very interesting part of Scripture. And the narrative of Daniel, it begins by introducing us to a great king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. If you are at all a history person, specifically world history, old world history, um, ancient history, then, then you're familiar with this king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of the, old, of the new Babylonian empire. Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, he was a great success, huge success, very, very powerful, as witnessed by his collections. Nebuchadnezzar had some collections. Um, most of us have collections. Everybody probably keeps something. Uh, maybe you collect clothes. Maybe you collect shoes. Guys, maybe you collect, you know, antique tools or something. I don't know. I collected baseball cards, as you have heard. But we all had these collections. Nebuchadnezzar also collected things. Nebuchadnezzar collected kings. Really, he collected kings. Nebuchadnezzar collected countries. Nebuchadnezzar collected cultures. That's what he collected. He was a king collector. When King Nebuchadnezzar conquered a culture, and he did that a lot, when Nebuchadnezzar conquered a culture, he would take the king of that country, that culture, that nation, and he would bring them back with him to Babylon. Most of the time, he would poke their eyes out. He would, like, periodically, to show off just how powerful he was, he would parade all of these kings around to show off. Like, kind of make them like a conga line, but without the conga. And he would show these kings off. And that wasn't all. He wouldn't just collect the kings. He would also, he would also collect, bring back things that were sacred to that culture. Again, this is it's just a flex. That's all it is. He's just flexing how powerful he is. But Nebuchadnezzar also collected talent. He was a collector of talent. So what Nebuchadnezzar would do when he would conquer a country, he would round up all of the outstanding young men of that country, and he would deport them back to the city of Babylon. Now, we're around the year 605 B.C., so about 600-ish years before Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar has conquered a culture. He is actually in the process of conquering what we think of today as it was the southern part of Israel, but we'll just call it Israel just to keep it simple. And in 605 BC, he will deport a 16-year-old teenager by the name of Daniel back to Babylon. He's part of the outstanding young men who gets deported which is where we pick the story up, it's where we pick the narrative up where we're told that after they're deported, after all this goes down, there's a lot of other history that happens, but we don't have time for it today. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, orders 
a man by the name of Ashpenaz. This was his chief of staff. He says, I want you to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and of the other noble families uh, that we've brought back to Babylon as captives. I want you to bring them to me. See, ensuring that the children of the powerful and the wealthy and the royal were captive, that kind of was like insurance. That ensured that that country was going to remain subordinate, remain a vassal state, keep paying your taxes kind of thing, right? We have your children after all. You wouldn't want anything bad to happen to your children. Do good. Don't rebel. Don't rise up. But it also served another purpose. I mean, that was one purpose. There was another reason that Babylon did this, because the children, the, these, these captives, they would be surrounded with the king's culture, with the king's ways, with the king's life. It would kind of be re-educated. See, their goal was to train their culture out and to train the king's culture in, make them truly a part of Babylon. And eventually, the best of the best, they would become leaders in Babylon, and they would, it just makes the empire stronger. It was a kind of a long game. And once Nebuchadnezzar had these deportees, he would start by actually renaming them. In fact, we have an example of that. Um, Daniel, and then we're told about three other individuals, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were four of the young men chosen, brought from Judah. And the chief of staff renames them with Babylonian names. Daniel gets the names, gets the names Belteshazzar. Hananiah gets the name Shadrach. And then there's Meshach, and there's Abednego. You've probably heard of these people, maybe. So you rename what is now yours, right? It's like a pet, you know? You rename your pet whatever you want them to be called. And eventually they figure it out. Confusing in the beginning, eventually they'll figure it out. Nebuchadnezzar tells Ashpenaz, I only want you to select strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. Make sure that they're well-versed in every branch of learning, gifted in knowledge, good judgment, suited for, uh, to serve in the royal palace, and then train these young men in the language and the literature of Babylon. This is the best of the best. The king assigned them, we're told, the king assigned these young men a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They're going to eat good, real good. They're trained for three years. This re-education system goes on for three years, and then they're going to enter royal service. They're going to have jobs, responsibilities. So for three years, these, these, these deportees, they're going to be re-educated in this system for three years. And a part of the program, a part of the program is they're going to eat a very specific type of food, food from the king's table. Now, this is a big deal. You say, on the surface, it's just food. But in truth, these kids have hit the jackpot, man. I mean, 600 BC, getting food was everything back then. Getting food, keeping food, continuing to get food, enough to eat, was a really big deal. In fact, one of the ways that you could tell whether someone was wealthy or not was how big they were. You wanted to be bigger. Is that as a flex? Wish it still was. So awesome. The opposite in our culture. But but it was that's the way it was. Having food was a big, big deal. Now, these kids, they have the best of the best of the best provided to them, free of charge. Food, really good food. On the surface, looks like a great deal, but Daniel, it was not. There was a problem. There was an issue for Daniel. And before we pick it up in verse 8, we're told that Daniel was determined. 
Daniel was determined. That word determined, if we amplify that word up, that word determined, it means resolved. Daniel was resolved. Daniel had made up his mind. He had purpose in his heart. He had rehearsed. Daniel said, no, I'm not going to do that. He said, he's not going to defile himself by eating food and wine that was given to him by the king. Daniel said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I, I already know I'm not going to do it. I'm not going, I've made up my mind. I'm not going to defile myself. Now, the implication to this verse is that Daniel had determined ahead of time what he's going to do. He's not waiting until in the moment. He knows before the situation ever comes up how he's going to respond. Daniel had decided very early on the opposite of in the moment. When the emotions, you know, and the extenuating circumstances and the rationale is bubbling to the surface. None of that mattered to Daniel because he had already made up his mind. He had resolved in his heart. He had already rehearsed that his story was going to be different. He's going to be the hero, you know. He's going to be the good guy in the story. Of course, being the hero of the story, it's not a one-time decision. It's not, again, it's not Disney. You don't get to rescue the princess from the dragon one time, and then all of a sudden you're the hero. That's not the way it works. It's a the decision that you got to continue to make moment by moment, decision by decision, life by life. Daniel decided early on, hey, I want to be the hero of the story. I want, to, I want to make decisions that are guided by integrity. And then he went about day to day doing it, which turned this dream into a reality. I mean, if we kept going with the story of Daniel, you'd see it over and over and over again in his life. He rehearsed it ahead of time, what he was going to do when he was going to face these decisions that, you know, in the moment, Hard to make that decision. And this is one of the decisions. This is, this is just a snapshot that we have in the life of Daniel. One quick snapshot of Daniel showing what he has already determined to do beforehand, not waiting until in the moment to make the choice. This is one of those big moments. And honestly, if you just read it for what it is and you just say food, it's like, really? Is that that big of a deal? It's just food. I mean, come on, Daniel. Of all of the things that you could make a big deal about, you've got to make a big deal about food. But he had determined, he had resolved, he had set in his heart, and he had rehearsed that he was not going to defile himself with this food. Say, well, why is the food a big deal? Here's the reason why. Here's the reason why. It's kind of like the circle of life, not like Lion King circle. God provides food. God provides food. And that food will fuel the body. It'll make the body healthy as a result. Good health will lead to prosperity. And the prosperity leads all the way back to that God getting credit for the prosperity. Daniel made a decision very early on. I'm not going to allow my good health, my prosperity, that credit to be given to the God of the Babylonians. The God of the Babylonians was named Marduk. Long, long time. It's been hundreds and hundreds of years before. Marduk was the chief God of the city of Babylon. It goes back thousands of years. Daniel just made a decision. I'm not going to do anything that could potentially give credit to Marduk, this false god of the Babylonians. I'm just not going to do it. He made that decision ahead of time. That's why the food was such a big deal. See, there was just something that was written on Daniel's heart that ruled over him. It, it held sway over him. 
how he was going to respond, how he was going to react. So Daniel made up his mind ahead of time. I'm not going to do it. It's not going to do it. When the time comes and I have to make the decision, it doesn't matter how tired I am, how stressed I am, how pressured I am, how angry I am. None of that matters because I'm already deciding now. I'm deciding today for 10 years down the road, I'm not going to do it. Just not going to do it. But that's not what a lot of us do. That's not what I do very, very often. In fact, more often than I would like to admit, that's not the way we respond. I have a tendency to wait until the big moment to decide what to do, right? I mean, after all, God's helping me write my story. He's going to tell me what to do when the time comes. I'm going to just know. But in the moment, in the moment when the pressure and the stress and the exhaustion and the consequences of that decision are real and in our face, when what we need, what we feel, what we want is on the microphone, when that appetite is hollering at us, we're more likely to give in to that appetite in the moment. I know I am because I've done it, which is why, like Daniel, we got to decide ahead of time. We can't make these decisions in the moment because in the moment, you ask any coach, ask any coach that has ever lived, do they wait until the moment to decide what to do? If they tell you, yes, they were not a coach for very long. They had a philosophy. They knew what they were going to do before the situation came up. They knew. They had rehearsed it. They knew when that decision happens, they're not going to have to make it in the moment because they already made it. If you ask a football coach, how are you going to use your timeouts? Are you going to use them on offense? Are you going to use them on defense? Are you going to use them here? Are you going to use them there? He knows. He doesn't have to think about it. He has a philosophy. You ask a basketball coach, hey, you're up three, four seconds to go. Are you going to foul? Are you going to let them shoot? She knows. She knows. We're going to foul every time. We're, going to, we're not going to foul. We're going to play it out every time. They know. Why? Because the decision's already been made. They don't make it in the moment. Because we can't be strategic in the moment. In the heat of the moment, if we haven't decided what to do ahead of time, rehearsed it the way Daniel did, we're just reacting at that point. We're just reacting. How have your reactions done you in times of crisis? Yeah, mine either. Mine either. See, what Daniel did was not a reaction. It was something he had rehearsed. He had rehearsed it. Maybe we, we don't know how. We don't know years before. We don't know. We know he was around 16 years old when it happened. But when the time came, he had already determined in his heart what he was going to do. He knew. And if we don't decide ahead of time things like this, these questions of integrity, doing the right thing because it's the right thing, even if it's going to cost us something we really want, really need, we're going to miss a chance to be the hero of the story. See, the principle of the path is very, very clear. It's direction, not intention, that determines destination. Integrity, integrity actually places ourselves in the hand of God, not in the hands of our appetites. Now, was Daniel's decision risky? You better believe it was risky. It was very risky. Daniel, God, God had never promised that he was going to intervene. Daniel didn't know. Daniel has no guarantees when he's making this choice. He does not know just how much this decision might actually cost him. He doesn't know. He just placed his life in God's hands and said, hey, this is the right thing to do. 
This is what I'm supposed, this is, this is integrity. Integrity says, integrity is my God, and integrity says I got to do this, even if it costs me. God, you do whatever and however you want to with me. I'm just doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And Daniel's story turned out to be something pretty amazing. Now, was Daniel's story without trials? No. Was Daniel's story, you know, pie in the sky and the sweet by and by forever and always? No, it wasn't. I mean, this is the same guy that spent a night in a den of lions. I mean, this, this guy did not have it great all the time. Wasn't perfect. See, Daniel did what he did, not because of the fact that it was natural for him to do it. It wasn't because Daniel was just a good guy. It wasn't nat- Daniel's no different than me. Daniel did it because there was just something written in his heart from God's hand that nudged him, ruled over him, and he just determined ahead of time, I'm just going to follow that nudging. I'm going to let that nudging that God's placed on my heart to push me to act in a heroic way, even though it's not natural. And that's the kind of history that we want to have go down as our story. No one would argue with that. No one would say, well, I don't want to be that person. Not if you're being honest. Everybody wants that. For Daniel, and I hope for me, and I hope for you, but I I hope for me, my story is only important because of history, because of his story. That's the only reason my story matters. My story doesn't matter otherwise at all. We say all the time we want to reflect God's glory. That's what we're talking about. My story only matters because of his story, because I get to play a part in his story. So I guess kind of in a way, God's the ghostwriter of the story. You know, I'm writing it day by day, decision by decision, but at the end of the day, it's God that's kind of, he's kind of like the Holy Ghost writer. <laughs> some of y'all got that, some of y'all didn't. I was afraid that wasn't going to go over well. Think about it. It'll hit. His story, God, Jesus, is the true hero of my story. And his story is what leads me to act in a heroic way. It's what maybe nudges me to act in a heroic way. But I'm not going to make that decision in the moment. Daniel decided ahead of time to listen to the nudging of God. He said, I'm I'm just going to do that. I'm I'm going to do that every time. And as a result, we're still reading his story 2,600 years later. And it's a story that will see Daniel remain in power for 70 years. He will influence kings. He will influence cultures. He will influence empires as a part of his story. And if you read the rest of his story, Daniel's, you'll just find Daniel walking upright, guided by integrity. Integrity that he had already determined, that he had already resolved, that he had already made up his mind, that he had already decided in his heart, and he had rehearsed since he was a teenager. So, as we kind of wrap up this series, wrap up not only this week, but really wrap up this series, we got kind of one last question. It's this, have you made up your mind? Have you made up your mind the way Daniel has made up, made up his mind? Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, i got to be honest with you, man. My story looks more like the villain as opposed to the heroic story of Daniel. My story is very, very different from the story of Daniel, at least the story of Daniel you're talking about. But 
Like we've said in this series over and over and over, if you're still breathing, if your heart's still beating, if you're here, your story's not over. It's not over. It's not done. Doesn't matter if you're 16 or if you're whoever the oldest person here is. I don't know. It's not over. It's not done. And it might cost you. It might. Writing a story, uh, a story of the hero, a story acting heroic because of God's nudging in our story, it might cost you. It might cost me. But you won't regret it. You won't regret it. You won't be ashamed of it. You won't feel like you have to hide that part of it from your kids. So as we finish this series, and the band's making their way up here on the stage, as we finish this series, I want you to consider these very, very simple but very, very practical next steps to finish up this series. Step number one is this. Identify your problem appetites. Identify them. Now, look, I know. Some of you have different appetites than me. I may have different appetites than you. We're all different. We all have different areas where we struggle. Some things aren't your problem. Some things are. But identify where your problem is at. Where do you struggle? Where do you keep falling and failing? Is it in the area of lust? Is it in the area of pride, anger, overeating, overspending, self-medicating, legal, illegal? Where is it that you consistently find yourself falling and failing when it comes to questions and it comes to decisions of integrity? Identify. And then step two, ask this question. When is it are you more likely to let the appetite have control? When do you find yourself most vulnerable in the moment? When circumstances are bubbling to the surface. Is it when you're tired? Is it when you're stressed? Is it when you feel like you're under pressure at work or you're under pressure at home? Is it when you feel emotionally lonely? When is it? I I don't know. When is it? What is the thing that you keep having a hard time with and you have to battle with? And when is it that you're most susceptible? Now, we've got to have a game plan. We've got to have a game plan. How are we going to respond? So this is where we want to encourage you to do this this week. Let's go to his story. Not my story. Let's go to his story. Let's find what God has written in his story that we need to make a part of our story so that we can make make some history. Weaponize his story. Find some some verses. I I cannot tell you what to find or where... Look in the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. I don't know what your, your, your struggle is. I don't know what your appetite is. I don't know what your circumstances are. I have no clue. I know what mine are. I don't know what yours are. Get in his story and find some verses that when you find that appetite hollering really, 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 really loud on the microphone and you know that you're most susceptible because you're tired, you're stressed, you're angry, you're hurting, you're lonely, whatever it is, have something from his story to make it a part of your story. Because you want to make history, and you can do it. And I don't want this to make it, if we're not careful, we can make this a self-help thing, and it's not. It's not a self-help thing. If my story is going to be a story worth telling, it's got to be the story that he's writing, not me. Get in his word. Get in his story. And help his story make your story story that you're proud to tell. Let's pray. God, 
Thank you so much that we can go to your story and then you gave us a story and that somehow you, you made sure, you miraculously have made sure over thousands of years, this in and of itself is a miracle, that over thousands of years, God, we have your story. We have your word. We have your great big story that you've been writing with us well before Daniel ever walked on this earth. God, you can do it. Our stories are not always what they want them to be. Our stories are not always what they hope, what we hope they would be. But God, if we're still breathing, if our heart's still beating, our story can change. You can. You are the king, and you can. Thank you so much for your son. Amen.